What's up? It's Delaney, and I'd love to invite you to become an honorary co-host of the Self-Helpless Podcast. Do you want to pick episode topics and guests? Done. Want to surprise your loved ones with shout-outs on the show for a birthday, project launch, a much-needed divorce? Whatever you're up to, would love to be a part of the celebration. Get your favorite and least favorite quotes featured on the podcast, submit questions for our special guests, and find lots more new features and surprises at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. You'll also get added to our patron insider email list to easily redeem rewards via a quick email reply because we know hanging out on Patreon isn't everyone's thing. You can also opt out of emails if you prefer to be a silent supporter of the show. And don't worry, we do not Scrooge McDuck these contributions. 100% of proceeds go directly to operating expenses that make this weekly podcast possible and available to all. Learn more at patreon.com selfhelpless or simply click the link in this episode's description. Thank you for helping me fill the void of being the last standing host of the Self Helpless Podcast. Thank you so much. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm no good at taking good advice And I'm self-careless, so don't tell me twice That lately I've been so stuck in my head That I forget just about everything my therapist said Maybe I'm self-helpless Maybe I'm self-helpless Maybe I'm self-helpless. Maybe we are self-helpless. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Self-Helpless Podcast. I'm Kelsey Cook. I'm Delaney Fisher. And today we're doing an episode on enmeshment trauma, and we are joined by such a fantastic guest. We have on Dr. Kate Balistrieri, and she is the host of the podcast Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Uh, she dives into the relationship between sex, mental health, relationships, and modern society. And she is a licensed psychologist and sex therapist. So we talked so in-depth about enmeshment trauma. And Jesus, it really, like, I did not realize how it affects so many different areas of life. I feel like... <laughs> I know we've, we say this quite a bit, but this is probably one of my favorite episodes. It, yeah. There were so many mind-blowing nuggets I have truly never heard before in yeah. in mental health education. And that's, and that's just probably me not looking into it enough, but we've been doing this show over six years, and there's so many just one-liners of big yeah. ahas and everything that I'm like, I can't believe this feels like such new information for me. And, you know, we've been in this space for almost, you know, closer to a decade than not, you know? Right. And yeah. Yeah. Whew. yeah. Um, <laughs> she talks about how, like, if people can get the tendency to get an ick in a relationship, like sexually, that might have something to do with your relationship with your parent if that was too enmeshed like just emotionally just so many things where you're like what I've never heard this and it makes so much sense for people it's nuts yeah even how like just being in a patriarchal society affects enmeshment which is why yeah. you often see more 
would she say mother daughter and mother son enmeshment uh, relationships i mean yeah she talked about how it affects friendships family relationships parents you know romantic partners siblings all that kind of stuff if you feel like this this really intense pull to be loyal and stuff to the family versus you know doing kind of what you want to do I my mind was just blown. I feel like if you watch this on YouTube, my mind or my my mouth was probably open the entire time, just gaping. Um, I feel like I got a little mini PhD. Listening yeah, to it's her very, sure. very educational. So we hope you guys enjoy our interview with her. This is coming out uh, toward the end of November. I've got two more tour dates for this year. I will be in Boston the beginning of December, as well as Tampa the weekend after that. And then I've got a whole list of cities for next year so far. Um, In January, I'll be in San Diego. February, I'll be in Tacoma, Philadelphia, New Jersey, Stamford, Connecticut. Um, In March, I'll be in San Francisco, Chicago, and Minneapolis. In April, I'll be in Madison, Sacramento, and Salt Lake City. And then in May, I'll be in Vegas and in Denver. And some other dates might have been added by now. So you can get tickets for all of those cities at KelseyCook.com. Awesome. And you can uh, go to DelaneyFisher.com for my other podcast, Career Crush, which is a private show completely free over there. Uh, We're going to be doing some free events coming up, uh, supporting people with different things. There's a lot of I I uh, give a lot of um, announcements about different career and media opportunities on my list over there. Everything is free and uh, been really loving, you know, my recent interviews, interviewed um, a new musician recently. an artist like there's just so many cool things we just talk about really finding the the work that you find you know fulfilling and meaningful the lifestyle the everything how to figure out what the fuck you want and then go and get those things uh but yeah we'd love to have you delaneyfisher.com amazing and i know by now our our other podcast will be out chad and i have started a podcast called pretend problems it's probably been out for a few weeks by now. So be sure to go subscribe and listen to my podcast with Chad. We're talking all things about our relationship, um, taking calls and emails from listeners who would like relationship advice, anything like that. So yes, please go subscribe and listen Yay! to Pretend Problems. Amazing. Yeah. Congrats. That's awesome. Thank you. All right, you guys, we hope you enjoy our interview with Dr. Kate and we'll talk to you after the interview. All right, Dr. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we usually kick off the show by asking our guests what their favorite or least favorite quote is. So if you have one, we would love to hear it. Hmm, let's see. There are a few that come to mind. Um, This one that I'll read is, it's a paraphrase. of the quote, and it's in the book, The Patriarchs by Angela Saini. Okay. And it's talking about um, basically the dawn of patriarchy and what happened when patriarchy was created because it's not a biological um, inevitability. And the quote is from Friedrich Engels and it's from 1884. And he basically describes the dawn of patriarchy as the quote, the world historical defeat of the female sex. And I just think that's such a powerful way to conceptualize patriarchy because prior to its onset, we lived in a much more egalitarian way of existence. 
What patriarchy has created, especially in uh, heterosexual relationships, is a dynamic where men are to be divorced from their emotions. And what that means in their adult partnerships is that their wives or their female partners often don't get the support that they need from their male partners. And so they are then more reliant on their children to meet those needs for them, which is why we often see more mother-son or mother-daughter enmeshment than we do father-son or father-daughter enmeshment, although those things exist for sure. Um, but it creates this sort of gap in the relational support of both mothers and fathers. So they rely on their children in different ways to meet those needs instead of each other, right? Because of the power dynamics that then exist in those marital or, or partnership relationships. Um, so patriarchy plays a huge role in how our adult relationships and our family structures have been organized because in a patriarchy, everything's hierarchical which means that, you know, nothing can really truly be mutual. And the people who are underneath <laughs> other people in that hierarchy are in service of supporting the power of the hierarchy. And so it does become this really corrupting and co-opting way of bringing children into this world where the um, needs are kind of met in an inverse way to what's actually uh, developmentally a healthy way of, of attending to kids' needs. That is fascinating, mind-blowing. I feel like a million times smarter just listening to you speak for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I just got like a college lecture or something. Yeah. Holy crap. Wow. Well, thank you so much for answering that. And thank you for being here. Could you just share, we're going to talk about enmeshment trauma today. Can you just share what is that? And what are the signs of that? Yeah. So enmeshment trauma really exists when um, a child has grown up with parents who exhibit few or no boundaries in the way that they are in relationship with that child. And it can be traumatic in so many different ways. But one of the biggest ways that it is traumatic is how insidious it is because the enmeshment growing up with a, a parent who doesn't have any uh, boundaries or doesn't have appropriate boundaries with you can feel really special and really close. And at the same time, it can feel like this big burden and obligation to please a parent or show up for a parent. And so the trauma can manifest in many different ways for adult children who grew up with enmeshing parents. Um, and we can get into some of those ways in a second, but I would say it's, it's really insidious um, and creates a huge distortion for a lot of adult children about the quality of the relationship that they had with their parent and who they are as a result of growing up this way. So there are a lot of um, identity fragments that, can occur when someone has grown up with an enmeshed parent because enmeshment essentially is the co-opting of a child's development in service of the parent's emotional needs. Wow. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion 
while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Just to get a little bit more specific, what would that look like? You know, I think a lot of parents want to feel like they are best friends with their children, you know, and they want to feel like they have a close relationship with them. What is the difference between a parent having a close, good relationship versus an enmeshed relationship? Yeah. Well, ideally, a close relationship is one that is based on mutuality and interdependence. That's really difficult to achieve in a parent-young child dynamic because children are dependent on us for survival. So what a healthy, close relationship looks like is recognizing that when children are young, it's kind of a one directional relationship. And that is the parents are holding space for and attuning to the needs of the children. And it is not expected that the children should take care of or anticipate or even understand the needs of the parent or the adults around them. So it's a very one directional relationship for a long time. And you can be close, you can be attuned, you can be um, loving, you can be celebratory, uh, you can even be friendly with your kid. But expecting your child to be your best friend is a way of elevating them into the role of a pseudo adulthood long before they have the developmental capabilities to do that. And it essentially robs them of the experience of being a child who doesn't have to worry about the world of adults and the worries uh, and the emotional needs of adults. When children are put in that role of having to take care of their parents' needs, and usually this happens very unconsciously, um, what it does is it basically forces them to skip over parts of their natural development as a child and move away from areas of creativity and spontaneity and the permission to be messy and the permission to have their needs attended to. And they tend to grow up as adults who are very over-functioning in a lot of ways and under-functioning in some ways. Um, they're very over-attuned to the needs of other people. And this can set them up to be in relationships with abusive partners who exploit that emotional labor. That's essentially what enmeshment is. It's the exploitation of another person's experience to benefit your own. Now it's not malicious. And I know parents aren't maniacally sitting in the corner, like, how can I mess up my kid? <laughs> um, yeah. But that's what ends up happening when, when parents don't have enough age appropriate peers with whom to get those needs met, they rely on their kids. And then it becomes this, this, you know, a, a, exploitation of their child's development and their identity and their emotional resources. Mm. Yeah. I, I once I heard, I don't know if we, we talked about this a while ago on the podcast Kels, but 
um, where I feel like there's been this idea that when you look at a little kid that kind of acts like an adult, it's almost like, wow, good job. They're so mature. They're so adult. And actually we could, we should start seeing that as a red flag. Yes. So, so that kind of parent parentification of the child, like, could you describe like, what does an unhealthy boundary or no boundary look like between a parent and a child? Like, what does, is that mean? Like they're, they're telling you certain things that they shouldn't be telling you or doing certain things around you. What does that actually look like day to day? It can have a, it can have many different manifestations. Um, but let's maybe start with a little bit of a breakdown because there's different kinds of enmeshment. Mm-hmm. There are um, parentification or there's parentification like you described. And parentification is essentially where a child is like tasked with a lot of domestic labor around the home that is beyond their developmental capacity and is really um, puts them in kind of a pseudo parent role, especially if they have younger children or younger siblings. So they could be like taking care of their siblings a lot, uh, making meals for them, cleaning the home, being responsible for groceries or making sure that their younger siblings get to school on time or things like that. That kind of parentification creates a set of responsibilities for children that is sort of beyond what is the scope of what they should be focusing on. Um, And then there's uh, emotional incest um, covert incest and emotional incest, they're sort of discussed, uh, interchangeably. Um, I will sort of parse them out a little bit, but emotional incest is when there are too few or, or not secure enough boundaries. And this looks like kind of forgetting where a parent stops and the child starts. So that could look like sharing too much of the parents' stresses with the kids, um, specific to things like, you know, we can't afford to pay our bills this month, or um, I'm really worried about your grandparent who is sick. And and there's a, a balance to strike because children should see their parents navigate their own feelings. But when their parents kind of come to them and make it something that they need help from their child to get through that sort of blurring of the relational boundaries creates a lack of differentiation between the parent and the child. And so it's called emotional incest because essentially our emotional processes should be more separate with between a parent and a child. Um, Again, so that the child doesn't have to take care of the parent and the parent can take care of the child. So that's one way that that can show up. It can also show up in terms of demanding a professional trajectory for your kid or living vicariously through them. You know, I've worked with so many clients whose parents have said, I wanted to be a dancer when I was growing up. And so I didn't have those opportunities and now you have them. So you should do it. And they really need their child to kind of fulfill an identity path that they didn't get to fulfill in their own lives. So we can see that when, you know, parent or their family has a family business, for example, and it's really important to those parents that the children take that over. That might not be what the child wants to do, but it's really important to the parents. So the parents need supersedes that of the, the child. And this can happen in lots of ways, like demanding that a child dress a certain way or comport their appearance in a certain way be friends with certain people because the ego needs of the parent require the child to present in a way that aligns with how they want to see themselves. So it can be really subtle. 
And it's hard sometimes to differentiate between I want what I think is best for my child or I want what is me, <laughs> what is Absolutely. best for me for my child. Yeah. Maybe that's helpful. Um, yeah. But then maybe the last framing is covert incest. And this is um, where there can be kind of a seductive or a sexual undertone, even though there is no direct physical sexual contact between the parent and the child. And this looks like sharing with the child inappropriate details of a parent's romantic or sexual relationship with their other parent or with other people with whom that parent is involved um, or demanding information about your parent, your child's sex life or romantic life that is inappropriate. So wanting to know details of how a sexual experience was for them or how they feel about it. And essentially like leveling your child up as a surrogate partner for you. Right. And that sometimes takes shape and form of like dating your child and taking them on dates or having them buy you flowers for your birthday and kind of creating for them this experience where they should be a partner to you in a way that interrupts their ability to have their own romantic or sexual lives. Right. I would imagine you see a lot of people in your work who have enmeshment trauma with a parent who has been through divorce, because yes. I think it's so easy if there isn't another adult partner in the picture to have kids be, you know, somewhat substitutes emotionally for that role of like sharing details of a date or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It happens so much when parents get divorced. You know, children are, are kind of a captive audience. And when they're scared and when the parents are scared or unsure of how to make sense of what's happening in their lives, I see a lot of parents who are trying to comfort their kids, but they're actually engaging in enmeshed behavior where they're oversharing their experience of what it means to be divorcing their, their other parent. And it can be really hard because the child then says like, well, this is my other parent, right? I'm half that person too. And they have to decide on who they're going to be loyal to. And this is probably the crux of enmeshment trauma is that as an adult, it creates a lot of loyalty binds. And what that means is that the child has to decide, am I going to be loyal to this parent and this parent's needs or idea of who I am? Or am I going to be loyal to myself and my own authenticity and run the risk of upsetting my parent or even upending the relationship if my parent does not respect my boundaries? Right. What yeah. would you say if somebody comes from enmeshment trauma and they're in their own romantic relationship now, what are some red flags that you feel like people can look for to see if they are now in an enmeshment situation in the romantic relationship. Yeah, it shows up in really insidious ways in romantic relationships and can even kind of take shape. One of the sneakiest red flags is where there is little tolerance for a difference of opinion or little tolerance for understanding that two partners have different equally valid perspectives on a topic or a conflict. And mm -hmm. There's a big difference between wanting your partner to understand your point of view 
and recognizing, oh, we have really different points of view. We got here differently. That's fine. That's an interdependent way of being. But if somebody's carrying an enmeshment trauma with them, it can show up and, and require that their partner see their perspective only and a denial of their partner's perspective. Because again, there's this identity, uh, a lack of differentiation or a lack of individuation in identities between an adult child and a, and a parent. And that can show up with partners too. I expect that we are going to be fused in how we see the world. And so when you are different, right? That's intolerable for me. It feels like a rejection of me because we are one is kind of the unconscious underpinning of that. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that really blew my mind. I know for me, as as I got older, like as you get older and you you go to your friends' houses and you date people and you all this stuff, you start to see different family dynamics, relationship dynamics, and then you kind of reflect on your own stuff, whether it's positive, negative, neutral, you realize everybody kind of does things differently. So what about the people who, you know, the people who are adults now and how do, how do, how do adults recognize they're still in enmeshment with their, you know, whether it's adult siblings or parents or, you know, anything else, mm -hmm. if you've been doing it for so long, how do you, how do you know it's an issue and how do you start to take steps to set boundaries? Yeah, there, there are so many other ways that this can show up in adult relationships. And sometimes what happens is people start seeing these things and they're going, wow, how come this is so hard for my partner and I, but other people aren't experiencing these kinds of difficulties, right? Other people solve problems differently than we do, or they can solve problems and we can't. Um, so they'll start to notice a, a contrast between uh, how they do relationship and how other people do relationship. Sometimes it, become, it can become painfully obvious to someone who's grown up with an enmeshed parent when they partner with somebody who didn't. And they expect from them a lot of mind reading. So in enmeshment, there's a lot of mind reading. You should know how I feel because there's no differentiation between us. And so for partners um, in adult relationships, it might be very difficult for them to articulate what they want and need because there's an unconscious expectation that their partner should know that already uh, because they were expected to know it with their parents and attuned to their parents. So they expect that their partner is going to do that for them. Um, when they go to therapy, people might start hearing the therapist kind of reflect back that something is perhaps not the healthiest way of approaching life or relationships. But a lot of kids grow up recognizing that something feels off, right? Um, maybe they're trying to individuate in, in their life and like go launch and be in the world and start a job and move somewhere new. And they're feeling this like pull from their family system, this like refusal to let them be different because to be different is to threaten the fused identity of the family. So they'll feel this like suction and this like, oh, the suffocation, this almost like engulfment or entrapment that they're very loyal to because to be disloyal might mean to have to leave the family. And so this is a real tension that a lot of folks can identify once there's a vocabulary for it. 
um, and some validation for it. And that begins the very real process of grieving because for many adult children of enmeshed families, creating new boundaries is the ideal, but the family system is so rigid in its enmeshment that it doesn't really tolerate that. So a lot of adult children find themselves in this position of having to go low contact or no contact with their family in order to feel a sense of liberation in their own authentic identities. Mm. So when like, so when an adult children, let's say tries to individuate from the family, what kind of things are pulling them back? Is it like guilt trips from people? Is it like threats? I mean, what is, what does that actually look like when somebody said, actually, I disagree, or I'm going to go move to this state instead of stay here. What is, yeah. What kind of things happen? I mean, it looks like all of that. Absolutely. Like subtle guilt trips. It looks like other family members may be saying you can't move because your dad's going to be devastated. Right. Or your mom's not going to be okay. If you marry that person, it's going to break her heart. That's a, that's an enmeshment ploy. That's like somebody pulling you back in and saying, no, 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 no. You have to abandon your interests and what feels good for you in service of this other person, your parent, um, their needs, because their needs are more important than yours. And this bumps up against a lot of cultural expectations around respecting elders and staying aligned with kind of the, the currency of how families function mm-hmm. um, and can be really challenging and complex for people to, to find their own path in if the family system is so rigid that it doesn't allow for any like malleability. Wow. Do you find that children of um, enmeshed relationships with their parents tend to be drawn to other people who are also, who come from that same place? Or are they drawn to more, like you said, people who might be looking to manipulate them or abuse them? How, How common is one dynamic versus the other? a great question. And it depends on the flavor of enmeshment that they really experienced. So, so there's, there are multiple ways that a parent can be enmeshing. And sometimes those forms are very critical. So the parent can be kind of fused in their identity and be very, very critical of that child. Um, so they might partner then with other folks who are more enmeshed and critical Um, because it's what they know and it's how they've encoded love and it's what feels familiar, not because they like it or it's good for them. And then there are the versions of enmeshment that look like a lot of idealization of that child. So that child becomes the hero child as opposed to the the critically enmeshed child becomes more of a scapegoat. So that hero might look for partners who are going to also idealize them and, you know, think they're great and not really hold them accountable for a lot of things. So when that happens, you know, there, there's, there's a higher risk of people replicating these patterns if they haven't started to do their own work. So when folks start to heal and start to individuate they're less likely to remain in partnerships that require them to stay enmeshed. Um, but enmeshment is, is a long unfolding, right? So 
I've worked with many partners who will find themselves in relationship after relationship after relationship where they, they end up in these regressed um, enmeshed dynamics because every time you partner with someone who's also on that journey of healing, it's like new layers become um, made aware to you. And then it's another grieving process and separation and individuation mm-hmm. process. So it can be a long healing. Yeah. Oh. How, how common is it that like narcissism or some kind of personality trait or something is correlated with enmeshment, you know, family dynamics, or is it, can it just be anybody that is feeling the need to enmesh with their family? It's a great question. Um, it's, it's hard to say the frequency with which narcissism is the driving impetus versus what are the cultural expectations around how people relate with each other separate from a narcissistic organization, but certainly an enmeshed parent can feel very narcissistic because there is um, a limited capacity on their part to fully mentalize and understand the perspective and experience of their child if they had stronger capacities to mentalize and understand what their child was going through, they wouldn't be enmeshing them, enmeshing with them in the same way. But oftentimes the parents who enmesh were very enmeshed by their parents. And so it becomes a blueprint for how to parent and a lopsided experience. I didn't get what I needed from my parents. In fact, I gave to them. So when I have kids, they can give to me, right? Uh, That's when I get to have somebody care about me when it should be the other way around. And so the cycle breaker in an intergenerational system often didn't get what they need from their parents and then has to give to their children. And so that can be a really difficult uh, dissonance to sit with. Yeah. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I think Delaney and I both found it really fascinating when you were talking about red flags or signs in a romantic relationship um, that you or you and your partner have enmeshment trauma uh, when you were saying that there's an expectation that you both will feel the same way about things. What are some other red flags or signs? Secretiveness. Um, So what can happen for a lot of adult and mesh children who haven't really uh, metabolized and healed through some of this pain yet is they fear being engulfed by their parents, but they're decidedly loyal to them. 
And when they enter into partnership, the same dynamic can perpetuate. So they enter into it from a place of loyalty and obligation, but they also fear being swallowed up by the needs of their partner. So there can be a lot of like passive aggressive distancing and um, avoidance and they can be, they can have inappropriate loyalties where they remain loyal to their family of origin and don't fully prioritize their partner as their new attachment person, right? Mm -hmm. So it can look like secrecy, right? I don't tell my partner everything about myself because that feels too vulnerable. If I open up and tell them everything, they're either going to reject me or I'll get swallowed up by by who they are or by the relationship sexually it can look like um being really hot and heavy at the start of a relationship but the more you emotionally merge and join with someone the more you get the ick sexually and don't have desire for your partner especially in dynamics where there was a hint of covert incest or a sexualized enmeshment with their parent. So that can take the shape in what we've talked about, right? A parent giving too many details about their own sex life. It can also look like a parent who walks around naked or a parent who leaves a lot of pornography around or a child who hears their parents having sex frequently. There's too much closeness and that can create this desire to kind of reject even more the idea of anything sexually with people that you share closeness with because it felt so unsafe for those kids growing up. So in romantic partnerships, it can look like desexualizing your partner and losing desire. And for a lot of people, it feels icky. Like that's the word I hear a lot. I get the ick or it's a disgust or it's like, whoa, right? And when that happens, there's usually some kind of trauma and it's often a kind of sexual trauma or an enmeshment trauma that is guiding that very strong aversion because disgust is a gatekeeping emotion, right? It keeps things and people away that we feel are unsafe in some way. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. This is a life-changing episode. I gotta (laughs) tell you, I am like on the edge of my fucking seat right now. We've been doing this show for over six years and it's always so interesting to me when we have conversations because I mean we've had very like similar themed conversations over six years you know lots of talk about children of divorce and and traumas and stuff like that but to hear such a specific piece of information that we have not heard before is really mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, this is oh, it's so, so helpful. I know that a lot of people are going to be helped by this. And so you mentioned that, you know, as a child of an enmeshment that's happening, that it really impacts their de- uh, their development, right? Um, what kind of skills or things are they not able to learn as a kid that then they have to like learn as an adult? What are they, what's the gap? I would say one of the biggest gaps is that children who are enmeshed do not have the, they don't develop the skills of interoception. So what that means is the perception of what is internal. They are so overdeveloped in their exteroceptive skills, meaning their perception of what's outside of them because their parents' needs have superseded their needs. So children in enmeshed families 
are really good at tracking their parents and tracking other people, watching for changes in their affect or their behaviors or their expression. They are fixated on what's going on outside of themselves so that they learn what is expected of them and they can pour themselves into the mold of that expectation. That is the adaptive strategy that enmeshed children learn to employ so that they have a chance of getting some of their needs met, right? If they do not capitulate to the needs of their parent, they run the risk of being rejected or punished or ostracized or being shamed. So children in this context basically learn to self-abandon because no one teaches them how to focus on what's going on inside of themselves and how to use that information to set appropriate boundaries for themselves and with other people. So enmeshed children, as they get older, again, often go into these, into relationships from a place of being very dutiful. I see what's happening with you and it's my job to make sure you're okay. Cause if you're okay, then maybe I'll be okay too. So their work looks a lot like learning how to go inward and think about what they need and what they want and the difference between those two things and learning how to say no with, with you know, self-assurance and with the trust that someone can tolerate their no so that they can really enthusiastically say yes and to break out of these patterns of being so obligatory in relationships. And when they can do that and move away from this like, obligatory, guilt-driven, shame-driven way of like capitulating to another person, they learn how to be more authentic. And that opens up so much more space for them in their lives to pursue other interests and become creative in different ways and, you know, have more vitality. It's soul-sucking to be in a relationship with someone where you feel like you are only in service of their needs and it's not mutual or relational. I personally have found it hard in relationships to like if I notice that my partner is upset about something whether it has anything to do with me or not to not let that affect how I'm feeling and kind of Mm -hmm. trigger what you're saying that um, desire to pour myself into making sure they're okay so that I then feel okay Mm -hmm. and I think it's hard when you don't know any other way to know how to do that without feeling like an asshole, (laughs) you know, without feeling like I, I know you're upset about something and I'm just going to kind of like let you be upset Mm -hmm. that I feel like that goes so against your, uh, your wiring. If you come from any sort of enmeshment stuff. Totally. It, it goes against everything that you've been trained to do as a child, which is abandon your own experience and show up for your parents' experience. Mm-hmm. And it is really hard. And when people start doing this work, the pendulum can kind of swing really far in the other direction. And they might be more entitled. They might be uh, less um, considerate of how they express boundaries because they don't have practice on how to finesse like a way to be relational and boundary setting. So they're afraid to set boundaries because they they do often feel like they're an asshole or they've been told that they're selfish and an asshole by parents who demand that they stay you know, organized around their needs. So yeah, it's, it's like the hardest part of the work, I think, is to figure out how to uh, say no and say yes 
while understanding that people can be disappointed and frustrated and angry about your decisions. And that has, that's none of your business, (laughs) right? Or it's not your job to take away their feelings by changing your yes or your no. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So what would like a healthy response be like you, you brought up um, an example earlier of like, you know, somebody's wanting to maybe move to a different area and somebody in the family says you you can't move. That will just crush your father or something. What's a response look like when somebody is still acting from trauma and what's a response look like when they've kind of healed and they're setting boundaries if they really want to move. (laughs) (laughs) So a a really trauma bound response to that might be like, oh, I can't move away. Okay. I have to stay here because he depends on, on his well-being depends on me being close or available to him. Um, Or, and and then like festering and resentment over that for however many years to come um, and falling down on yourself and the passion that would have been really life sustaining for you moving forward. So that would be kind of one extreme. Um, That child might still move away and then might feel like a really bad person or really guilty. Um, They might capitulate to their parents' other needs because they're trying to rebalance that scale and prove how much they care about their parent and how much they mean to their parent in that way. it, they might get really resentful because maybe they move away and then they're punished within the family system. You know, other, other people say that they're selfish or they don't get treated with the same kind of um, idealization or false empowerment that they had before. So it can really change power dynamics in families and, and it can, it can result in a lot of, uh, I would say, crumbling or internalized ideas of being wrong or bad. Um, when somebody has done more healing, they might you know, be able to hold space for their parent and say, I really get that this is hard for you and our relationship is really important to me. And here are the ways that I still want to be there for you, um, even though I'm going to be far away. Uh, so that could be one way of showing up in a more healed space. Another way of being healed is making the decision and kind of letting your parents feel their feelings without you needing to try to make it okay, right? I understand this is hard for you and it's really good for me. I hope you can talk to someone about that, right? It's okay to set boundaries and to not be the person that your parent leans on for all of that support. Mm. Yeah, That's super helpful. Thank you for giving those specifics. Yeah, of course. I've experienced that. So exactly this year, I moved from Washington state to Minnesota and um, my mom has dementia and that was really hard for me to make that decision. Mm -hmm. And I have felt that, you know, probably unhealed enmeshment part of me that after I moved, it felt like I needed to almost go into overdrive in overcompensating, like making up for the fact that I have moved. And so I had put these expectations on myself of like, okay, well, if you're going to move, you still need to try and visit like once a month and you need to do a FaceTime call every other day and and all these things. And um, that's all also incredibly draining and hard and like taking away from your, uh, your energy. And, and it's just, Mm -hmm. 
it's tough. It's really hard to find that balance where you can feel like you are doing enough, but not running yourself into the ground. It is a really delicate balance and it is not for any person to tell another person what that balance should be, right? We all have to live with the feelings that come up with the decisions that we make. So for some people, it's easiest to create space, no matter how much grief might live there, Mm -hmm. because it's unsafe for them to stay in, in the dynamic in another way. And so that might be really the best solution for one person. And another person might say, no, I can't live with the guilt or the shame, or I can't live with whatever might happen to my parent if I take more space. So it's, it's a really individualized process to kind of figure out how to make those decisions. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Is there a relationship with um, like PTSD and enmeshment trauma? Is there any kind of other relationships we should know about with other, I don't know, disorders or anything like that? Sure. Yeah. Um, An enmeshed dynamic can result in a tremendous amount of anxiety or depression, and it absolutely can result in complex PTSD where there have been a lot of invalidating or abandoning experiences for that child emotionally. And so those, those like death by a thousand poke kind of experiences accumulate in a person's nervous system over time. And that can result in a very, um, uh, sometimes very acute picture, but often it looks like kind of a low grade um, humming in the background experience of PTSD. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The other way that it can kind of manifest, I want to just make sure to say this, um, is that in romantic relationships, people often choose a lot of non-starters. That language is from Ken Adams. Um, But they will pick partners with whom there's really no risk of uh, there being a closer relationship than there is with the enmeshed parent. Because unconsciously, even psychologically to kind of shift the loyalty to a new partner is so threatening to that adult child that they'll, you know, psychologically stay married or connected to their parent and just pick people with whom they don't fully merge or connect. Wow. My gosh. Are there any other misconceptions about this or anything that you think is really important for people to know if they're resonating with this, if they've like, okay, I definitely got this going on. Anything that you want to say to those people? Um, Give yourself some grace, right? As you learn how to conceptualize your own identity separate from the role you've played in your parents' needs. Um, It can feel really scary. It can feel really isolating and it can feel really jarring to dip your toes into uh, a liberated experience. Um, And when I say liberated, I mean an experience that is yours, that you, that you are the architect of and for, and it might require a lot of pendulation between Um, figuring out who you are and then maybe retreating back into the familiarity of this enmeshed system and then maybe dipping your toe again and coming back. It's not a linear process to fully individuate. Um, And to individuate or to liberate yourself is a painful process. and And some people decide it's not worth it because it does 
come with a lot of grief um, and isolation sometimes. And for other people, that's the only way they can survive. So whatever path you decide is the right path for you in this moment is the right path for you in this moment. Mm. And is yes, I was just going to say, if, if uh, the parent, any parents tuning into this are resonating with this, they've recognized, oh, I'm, I'm doing some of this and I didn't know it was, could be harmful. What, what could you share with them that can, you know, help them going forward? I know, like you said, this is not malicious. So what can people do? Well, also have some grace for yourself, right? I think a lot of parents get really defensive um, when their children bring this up because they don't want to believe that they were not great parents. And many of them were wonderful parents in many ways, but this is a way that maybe they weren't the most attuned to their child. So hold space for the nuance. Um, you can be, you can have been wonderful in some ways. And also some of the things that were adaptive for you may have been hurtful for your children. So when your kids bring it up to you, if they do, um, this is your opportunity to show your kids that you can hold space for their experience without making it about you and how you did the best you could, or you thought you were doing what was right. And, and all of the ways that parents can try to defend their position, those sort of defensive remarks serve a good benefit for you in the moment, in the short term, but in the long term, they kind of reinforce the problem with your child, right? Where like their experience is not being heard or witnessed or attuned to. So I think that's maybe the first step. Can you hold space for your child to share with you the impact of this on them? Knowing that if your child is saying this to you and they're bringing this to you, it's because they love you and they really want a relationship with you that is thriving and that is vibrant for you both. If your child is bringing this to you, it's a bid for connection. It's them saying, please help me recalibrate this so that we can have the relationship that we both want. A lot of parents feel like they're being threatened or um, like their child is kind of saying you're bad, <laughs> but I just see it as such a different experience. Um, so when parents can kind of like step back from that place and process the feelings that come up for them with a therapist who's trained in this space, Oh, that can make such a difference. And and it, I've seen so many parent-child relationships heal when parents can take some accountability and say like, you know what? Shit, I'm sorry. I didn't realize how I was getting my needs met from you and that wasn't fair to you. That's really what so many kids want to hear. And when they hear something like that, it creates space for them to have compassion for their parent and for renegotiation of the boundaries to be based on who you both are today and what you both need today. So you can actually be the friends that you wanted to believe you were back then. Wow. Thank so, you so invaluable. Yeah. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing all of this. Um, is there anything that you would like to promote? Any, any resources that you would like people to, to know about about you? Um, well, probably the best place to go um, if you want to connect with me or anyone on my team would be our website, modernintimacy.com. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm at Dr. Kate Balistrary on TikTok and Instagram. On YouTube, we have some good videos um, and we're at Modern Intimacy. 
Um, and then we do have uh, an enmeshment journal coming out this fall. So it's going to be kind of a bit of education and then some self-reflection exercises that can be really useful for any adult children who are trying to figure out what's been the impact of all of this on me and where am I today in my healing? So you can check that on our website. Um, and we have other great resources there too. This was one of my favorite episodes. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Kate. Well, I know we said it a million times in the intro, but that interview really did blow our minds. <laughs> my gosh. I mean, yeah. uh, Dr. Kate, you have any rib on your roster? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I wanted to just keep talking to her and asking her questions. Just so, yeah, fascinating. Just so, so fascinating. Yeah, I hope this, hope this was helpful. And if it resonated with you, I can't wait to go check out her other stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, we have an iTunes review of the episode. This is from Diver Jim. Um, and it says, just in love with six cookie emojis. Oh, thank you so much. You guys know how we love our cookie emojis, maybe more than anything. So thank really you. Appreciate that. Yeah, if you want to leave an iTunes review, takes a second. It'll get right on the podcast. Uh, and also, we have a Patreon community. If you want to pick a topic coming up, you can vote on topics. You can submit shout outs that get on the show for your, for your loved ones. Uh, you can submit quotes. I mean, all that kind of stuff at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. For sure. Delaney, do you have a segment? Um, I think my my good shit is I'm visiting you this uh, this coming weekend. So I'm really yes. excited to yes. stay in your new home and just be surrounded by trees and greenery and just get the fuck out of L.A. for a long weekend. <laughs> I am really looking forward to that. Oh, my but, God. Yeah. That's, I'm that's, so excited that's... to have you. Taylor's coming, too. We're having just a girl's... Girls few days hanging out. You guys gonna meet Chad in person? I can't wait. I know. It's so crazy. It's gonna be like a nice little retreat. Yeah. I, yes. I cannot wait. So that's um, mine. What about you? My good shit is that I, I had shows in Spokane over the weekend and we were able to get my mom out to one of my shows. We we like coordinated with the van service and one of her nurses and it's just it's so special to have her in the crowd because you know, each year that goes by with this dementia, I never know, like, how many more times I will get to have her in the crowd. And so I was very present on stage, just like really enjoying being up there, knowing that she was out there. And she had an amazing time. She was just like smiling a ton. She kept saying, I'm so happy. And she just did really well. Like it it felt like her being out and about really helped with her alertness and it was just very special. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Oh, that's so nice. I'm so glad. Thank you. So glad that you had that experience. Thank you. Oh my God. I can't stop you on it. I am so tired. That was my fourth week in a row on the road and I'm still trying to recover. So, um, But yeah, Tampa and Boston next month. And then, like I said, all those tour dates for next year's, like the first half of next year are on my website. So KelseyCook.com, guys. DelaneyFisher.com for Career Crush, the podcast, and all kinds of other free stuff. Love to have you. Have a good one, everybody. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. 
Maybe I'm self-help. Thank you for tuning in to the Self Helpless Podcast. You can find our Patreon community, merch, and our individual work at selfhelplesspodcast.com. We'd be thrilled if you shared this episode with a friend, left an iTunes review, or feel free to post it on your Instagram and tag at selfhelplesspodcast. Thanks, guys.